0: To Everybody else, welcome. Yeah, so we finished up last week. Uh, just a great time together as a church, and this made for this journey, and and looking at uh, the purposes that God has for our life. And so uh, that was a great time. But today we are actually jumping into something new. So hopefully you received some message notes when you came in, and you have a Bible nearby. There's one in the chair in front of you, or you can find it, of course, on your phone or uh, device. Because we are beginning a new series today on the Old Testament prophets of Elijah and Elisha. Um, and And so maybe you remember about five years ago, we actually began as a church making a commitment to slowly but surely work our way through the whole Old Testament story. So a little bit each year, uh, we started in Genesis and have been working our way through the story of the Old Testament Earlier this year, we spent some time in the era known as the kings. And that period of the kings, which is follows kind of a a high point in the story in Israel's history, which was the time of King David and then his son Solomon. Uh, But after that, there's this 350-year period where things are really a mess. And we talked about it as the good, the bad, and the ugly, because God gives us some good kings and a lot of bad kings and some that are downright um, ugly. And through that 350-year period, what we really see is kind of a, a divided kingdom. So God's people are divided into a northern and southern kingdom, and they're kind of just slowly sliding away from God into idolatry. And it ends up being really a very tragic time in the whole Old Testament story, because at the end of that, even though God had warned them time and time again to come to him, to turn to him, eventually God says, enough. And, and the, first, the northern kingdom of Israel— and then the southern kingdom of Judah are invaded um, by outside people. The, The kingdoms are essentially destroyed, including Jerusalem and the temple, and the people are carried off into captivity. So that is just a really difficult time in the history of Israel. And while we studied the kings in that period earlier, I have to admit that we also left out a really important part of the story when we looked at it earlier this year, partly because of the way it's kind of set up in the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, but we neglected to mention that at the same time that the kings are leading the nation, that there is also this kind of another parallel track that's running alongside. So you have the kings and all that they're doing here, and kind of a parallel track running beside them, which is the prophets. And the prophets represent God. And the prophets speak on behalf of God. And no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad the king is, no matter how far the people stray away from God, the prophet is there calling people back, calling them to repent, saying God's way is a better way and it is a good path. And here's the thing, that's definitely a part of the Old Testament story, God providing his prophets like that. But we actually see it throughout history. In fact, no matter how dark things get in the world, no matter how dark things get in the world, God almost always provides this prophetic voice calling people to repent and calling people to come to him. Now, oftentimes that prophetic voice will be rejected. It will be ignored. Oftentimes the prophet ends up having to go alone, but God always provides that prophet into the culture saying, this is the way. It's a part of God's plan for the world. And so before we jump into the actual details of Elijah and Elisha, like we're going to for the next five weeks, I just want to say that one of the main functions for the church, and not just this church, but kind of the church at large, one of the main functions of a Christian in this world and in any generation is to be that prophetic voice, Because no matter how dark things get in the world, God provides people to say, no, uh, come this way. And oftentimes, the prophetic voice will be rejected. Sometimes it will be ignored. Sometimes it means that that prophet has to go alone. But God in his mercy is always saying, repent, turn to me. Come on this path. That path you're on is leading to death. And there is another path that leads to life. And they play this important role in the world. Um, Now when we think about that, it can be a little intimidating uh, and even a little scary and certainly humbling to realize that we play that role of prophetic voice in this generation that we live in. But here's what it ought to do for us as individual Christians and for us as a church when we realize that. It should cause us to lean in ever closer to Christ right? Because as we understand this calling that God has for us, we need to know Christ's heart more. We need to know his word more. We need to know his message more, because if we are going to be that voice, then we need to be in tune with that voice. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to specifically look at Elijah and Elisha, who are two of Israel's most important prophets. And if you are like me, and sometimes you find yourself in your walk with God falling into routine or, or just kind of getting in a little bit of a rut, and sometimes you just need a little kick in the seat of the pants to kind of move you along, then the stories of Elijah and Elisha are for you, because these are men of wild faith, and God does some amazing things in them and through them. So I invite you to open up your Bible to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning, and that is where Elijah first comes onto the scene. Now, it's actually next week in 1 Kings 18 that we come to kind of the high point of Elijah's life. That's the kind of most famous event in Elijah's life when he has this showdown with the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah there on uh, Mount Carmel. And, and not only does Elijah go toe-to-toe with the prophets, but we see God work in some amazing ways. And that's kind of the high point uh, of his life and his ministry. But of course, Elijah doesn't just stumble into being this like, epic hero, this epic man of God by accident. There's things that take place in Elijah's life. There's process. There's preparation to get him to the point, and today what we're going to do is we're going to look at that process that helped Elijah get ready ultimately for the big things that God has for him. So quickly, just a little bit of background before we jump into this, to the story. Uh, so the historic context is this, as I said, a time in Israel's history when they're coming after King Solomon. King Solomon started out very strong, but then he started to kind of uh, fade as as a number of temptations were in his life. But then after King Solomon, they have eight evil kings in a row, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, eight bad kings in a row. And the current king is a guy by the name of Ahab. And not only was Ahab an evil king, but he decides that he's gonna marry this sweet young girl from the neighboring pagan tribe of Sidon. And I'm actually being sarcastic about that because it turns out she's not this sweet young lady. She is a woman by the name of Jezebel. Anybody heard of Jezebel before? Um, so Jezebel um, is uh, becomes... Uh, Ahab's wife, and as a king and queen, they do more to not only stray from God, but they do more to pull people away um, from God and toward the idols than really any other kings and queens before them. But remember, as bad as things get, because as Ahab and Jezebel are on this trajectory leading the nation, God provides this other parallel track. He provides his prophet. And specifically, in this case, he brings along the guy by the name of Elijah. One of the first things you need to know about Elijah is just his name, because it speaks so much to who he is. The name Elijah literally means, in Hebrew, the Lord is God. So El, Eli up there at the beginning is, is, is Elohim, uh, God. God, and Jah is Jehovah or Yahweh, so it's the Lord is Jehovah or Jehovah. Yahweh, the true God, is my God. And this is not only Elijah's name, but this is Elijah's message, right? This is, this is what he's all about. And funny, I don't know about you, but I've known a lot of people named Eli or Elijah. I've never known anybody named Jezebel. Has anybody known someone named Jezebel? in the first service, this girl raised her hand. I'm like, I hope that wasn't your like, sister or something like that. But uh, I've never known anybody uh, named Jezebel at all. Um, so when Elijah comes on the scene, it's really interesting because Israel's going in this direction, and it's a bad direction. And, and what does God do? He doesn't raise up an army to go against Ahab and Jezebel. What does he do? He raises up an individual. He raises up this prophet. And, and let me just kind of full disclosure. Why are we even studying this as a church? Not only are we trying to go through God's story, but this is an important part for us because we see that Elijah has to go alone. And I really believe that in this church and in this generation that God wants to raise up some Elijahs, some people that are willing to stand up even when it's difficult, even when it feels like they have to go alone. And maybe it's you in your workplace when the culture and the the climate is just so negative and maybe even anti-God. Or maybe it's you as a high school student who on your campus is going to stand up for, for purity and goodness, even though people are going to maybe even make fun of that or, or go another direction. Or, or maybe it's you as a parent who, who, you know, has seen your child go through so much and you are on your knees every day. Even when people say, oh, it's, that story's over. No, you're on your knees. Or maybe it's a couple that, that people are saying, "Ah, oh, your marriage is over. That's the end of it. You guys should just cut your losses and go your other way. And you say, no, God's called To be something different. And so we're going to stand up and we're not only going to fight for our marriage, but we're going to look at ourselves. We're not going to point the finger at the other person. We're going to say, What do I need to change so that I can stand up and be different in this generation that I am living in? And I believe that God is calling some of us to be those Elijahs that are that voice that sometimes have to stand alone. And I don't say that to scare you, I say it to encourage you. Because Elijah then he goes alone. And the first thing he does is he has to go and he has to bring this word of prophecy to Ahab and Jezebel. And it's kind of a hard thing that he has to say to them. He goes to to Ahab and Jezebel and he says... you need to know that God is going to hold back the rain for a few years. In fact, God is going to hold back the rain until he says so and until I tell you so. So until you hear from me again, there is going to be no rain. There is going to be no dew in any part of the world and so or any part of, of your kingdom. So that's a pretty harsh thing to, to, to say to Ahab and Jezebel. It's, it's kind of a challenge to them, but it's not just a challenge to Ahab and Jezebel, but it's a challenge to their gods as well. Because they followed idols, including the idols of the Baals. And one of the things that they believed that Baal was the storm god. Baal was the god that brought rain. And Elijah, the Lord is my God, says no. He says that, that god, god is the one who controls the rain. And so there will be no rain on this land until um, God says so, and I tell you. And so Elijah throws down this prophecy, and the first thing he has to do is he has to go and hide, because Ahab and Jezebel are mad at this from the very beginning. And so Elijah has to go and hide, and God tells him, you need to run away, and you need to go to this place to hide. And from this point on, school is in session for Elijah. Because remember, God is preparing Elijah for that battle, just like God is preparing some of us for what that battle may look like but one of the things we see about Elijah is before God can work through him, God needs to work inside him. Before God can ever use Elijah to do some of the powerful things that he's going to do, Elijah needs to learn some lessons about his relationship with God. And so that's what we want to look at today, these lessons that he's going to learn in 1 Kings 17, starting with the lesson of total dependence on God, total dependence on God. So let's pick up the story at the start of 1 Kings 17, where we read this. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So again, that's a pretty harsh judgment that he gives because as an agricultural society, that's like saying you are heading into economic slowdown, right? And I think a lot of us feel that these days. You feel the, you know, the price of gas, and the price of groceries, or you see your 401k slipping towards the 201k, and you think, ah, that's, this is Elijah saying, hey, this is what is coming for you. So he says there's not going to be any dew or rain for the next few years. And so then the word of the Lord, verse 2, says the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook that I have directed the ravens to supply, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So Elijah did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, obviously, that's kind of an odd story in a number of different ways. But one of the things that's kind of surprising about this story is that God directs Elijah to this place known as the Kirith Ravine. And one of the things that's odd about that is as much as archaeologists and scholars have looked for a place called the Kirith Ravine, there is no mention of the Kirith Ravine in history. Now, most places in the Bible, even if they're not, you know, don't have a modern equivalent, you can still find them somewhere in the archaeological record. You can't find the Kirith Ravine anywhere, probably because it was just so small and really kind of isolated and not that significant. But what we know is this, is Kirith in Hebrew means to cut down. So part of God directing Elijah specifically to this place known as the Kirith Ravine is God telling Elijah that you are going to be cut down. You are going to go through a season where you are going to have to humble yourself. And he says, I'm going to remove any strength that you have in yourself, even to take care of your most basic needs. Because Elijah, I've got something great for you to do. You're going to be my voice in this generation. But before I can work through you, I need to work in you. And so the first thing you need to learn is this humility, uh, Elijah, that you can depend totally on me. And, and there in the Kirath Ravine, what are some things we know about it? Elijah is alone, there is no one else for him to lean on at that point. He was isolated, he was alone. He was also uncertain of his future, right? God told him, go east of the Jordan, go to the Kirith Ravine. He doesn't tell him, and then do this. He just says, go there and wait, I'll provide food. He doesn't say what comes next. He doesn't say what happens to Ahab, Jezebel. He just says, go there. And so I'm sure he feels kind of the uncertainty, and it's kind of out of his hands. Uh, I, I'm, he, he's not sure how his needs are going to be met. God gives him this system of ravens bringing the food, but how long is that going to work? And, you know, this is not in the text, but I've wondered to myself, I wonder if in this Kireth ravine that maybe Ahab started to have some doubts about this whole calling thing. Should he really have gone and said those words to Ahab and Jezebel? Couldn't he have just been quiet like everybody else? Couldn't he just have gone along with the status quo? Did he have to open up his big mouth? And I just wonder if he started to have some regrets. Because there in the Kireth ravine, he was all alone and he had nothing to depend on but God. And the truth is, is that some of you right now are in the Kirith Ravine and you might feel alone. That's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling to feel like nobody understands or nobody knows what I'm going through and I just feel alone. I don't have anywhere to turn. You may feel like you're facing trials where you, you don't know what to do. You wish you knew. You'd do the right thing if you knew what it was, but you don't even know what it is. And you're there in that Kirith Ravine. And if you're here today and you find yourself in one of those places where you just feel at the end of the rope. I need to tell you, if you're in the Kireth Ravine right now, that God sees you and God has not forgotten you. In fact, God may have you there for this season so that you can learn to depend totally upon him. Because God needs to work in you before God can even work through you. God has great things ahead for Elijah, but he needs him to be ready. And he needs him to know that he can't turn to someone else or some other place for his strength. He needs to turn to God alone. One of my favorite authors, theologian, A.W. Tozer, says it like this. He says, it's doubtful that God can use a man greatly until he has been hurt deeply. And on the surface, you think, what kind of God is that that would allow someone to go through, through hurt? How could a loving God allow us to go through difficult things? And yet what we need to remember is that God is, in fact, a loving Father. And not just a loving Father, but He is a good Father. And so He understands that sometimes it's hardship and difficulty in our life that is going to mature us and is going to discipline us and is going to get us ready for the things. You know, you're not a loving Father if you always take all of the pain and all of the problem and all of the struggle away from your kids. You're enabling them. You're not helping them, right? And so God says, God says, I've got you here in the Kirath Ravine because I'm a loving father and I want to work in your life. So if you are in that difficult season right now, if you're in that Kirath Ravine, can I just encourage you that before God uses Moses, Moses is 40 years in the wilderness. I hope yours is not that long, and chances are it won't be. But for Moses, it was 40 years. Before God uses Joseph, he's years in prison. Before God uses Paul, he sends him off to Arabia for a time alone. Even before Jesus started his ministry, he goes through years of preparation and then a time of temptation Right? And so uh, we see, though, that there in the Kirith Ravine, as I mentioned, God has not forgotten Elijah. And actually, God provides for Elijah when he's there at the Kirith Ravine. How does he do it? Well, let's just look at the story. First thing we see is that God provides for Elijah in very surprising ways. This is going to be kind of a theme of the chapter, but he, he decides that he's going to use ravens to bring him food. Now that 's weird on a number of different levels, but ravens are actually an unclean animal as well so God says, Elijah, the, my provision's not going to come the way you expect it's going to come in this surprising way specifically it's going to come with this raven that brings you food in the morning and the evening and so that 's the second thing we see it's it, that God provides for him, but only with enough for the moment. This little raven doordash arrangement is kind of a strange deal because it comes once in the morning, once in the evening, and Elijah doesn't get to stockpile food right he doesn't get a, to, to get a little bit extra. why? because when we start to get a little extra when we we start to stockpile, what do we depend on there? We depend on our stockpile. But now, here it's every day Elijah looking to the sky, is the raven going to come again? God provides in surprising ways with just enough for the moment. And in this time, God even allows the problems to become opportunities. Because don't you know that He faced problems in the Kirith Ravine? That's what the Kiriath Ravine means. But sometimes we look at those as only problems and we need to reframe those, right? We need to reframe those as opportunities for God to work in our life. And that's exactly what happens. Now the prophecy that Elijah gives comes back to bite him. Because what does he say? He says there's not going to be any rain in this season. And so by the time we get to verse 7, we see that his wonderful little brook has dried up. And so that's a problem, but it's not necessarily a problem. It's an opportunity because God's ready to teach him the second lesson. And that's the lesson of living with an open hand. The lesson of living with an open hand. Why do I call it that? Let's look at verse uh, 8 here. So uh, 1 Kings seventeen eight. Then after the brook had dried up, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And then he goes one step further, and as she's going to get it, he calls to her, and he says, hey, and by the way, bring me, please, a piece of of bread. She replies, As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me and what you have have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And so she went away and she did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah. Elijah and for the woman and her family, the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word that the Lord had spoken through Elijah. So I love that. What an amazing story that is. And once again, God provides in the most surprising way. So, first of all, he provides through this raven who is an unclean animal. And now he says, You have to trust a widow. And not just any widow, but a very poor widow. Now, usually when God gives instructions about widows, it's that you take care of the widows. But here he flips it upside down on Elijah. And he says this widow, in fact, this poor widow is going to take care of you. And not just a poor widow, but a poor Gentile widow. And not just a poor Gentile widow, but a poor Gentile widow from Sidon. Sidon. Now, we've heard that word once already this morning. Does anyone remember who else is from Sidon? That's where Jezebel's from. So what you've got is God telling Elijah, I want you to go to the very place that the crazy woman that is chasing you and trying to take your life, I want you to go right to that very doorstep and hear this woman that nobody would expect. She's so poor, she doesn't have anything. She's gonna take care of you until there's rain. Nice plan, God, that sounds great. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the the old story about um, the single mom who was so faithful to care for her family and did everything she could to provide for her family, but it was always a struggle. And so she would pray, and she would pray loudly, God, I know that you are good. I know that you see us, and and I know that you're going to provide for us. And she lived in this little apartment, and she prayed so loudly that the guy on the other apartment right next door could always hear her. And the guy that lived next door was this strong atheist, and it just drove her crazy to always hear this woman uh, praying like this. He would even go to her and say, lady, you're crazy. There is no... God, why do you keep praying for that? It didn't deter her at all. She just kept praying, God, would you provide? I know you see us. I know you care. And then finally it came one of those times when, you know, there was a little more month and there was money and she was really out of things and things were getting desperate. And so she cried out even more, God, I know that you can provide. I know that you see us. And the atheist is just fed up. He's like, I am going to do something about this once and for all. I am going to prove to her that there is no God. And so he gets in his car and he drives down to the store and he buys a bunch of groceries. He buys like six bags of groceries, takes them home, puts them on her, her doorstep, knocks on the door and hides around the corner. The woman comes out, opens the door, sees all these groceries. She's like, this is, amazing. And she just starts to praise God, thanking God for his provision. The atheist jumps out and says, ha, I told you there's no God. God didn't provide those groceries. I provided them for you. This didn't stop the lady at all. She just kept praising God, saying all these things. And she said, God, you are so good. Not only did you provide for my needs, but you made the devil pay for it. (laughs) Thanks. I went a long way for that joke. (laughs) But it's true there's this surprising ways and and the woman uh, this Gentile widow from Sidon she's far from the the devil but she is a surprising place and it's surprising that God would use her to help teach Elijah the lesson of living with an open hand because when you see when Elijah meets her she has nothing She's gathering some sticks to prepare the last meal so her and her son could just have one little loaf of bread before they just go and die. There's no more flour, there's no more oil. This is the end, we're done. And God says, oh no, you're not. And Elijah speaks to her in faith and tells her, don't be afraid, go home and break me some bread for yourself and let's just see what happens. And here's the most amazing part of the story to me. She does it. She just believes Elijah and believes God and she goes and does it. And she takes the last little bit of oil and flour that she has and notice she doesn't bake anything for herself first. First she takes it to Elijah, provides for him, and then after that takes care of her own needs after she's given generously. She could have done this. She could have heard from Elijah and with a closed hand she could have said, oh no, you are not getting my last little bit of flour and oil because this is all I've got. And with closed hands, she could have said, this is, I worked hard for this, and, and this is mine, and, and I need this, and all of these reasons why she would have held on so tightly to this with closed hands, and that she was teaching Elijah the lesson of the open hands. And so she opens her hands and, and allows this to go generously to Elijah. And when she opens her hands, what happened? God not only allows her to, to, to give generously But now she's in the posture to receive generously from God. If all she's got is closed hands, not only is she holding back, but she's never able to receive what God wants to provide for her. And Elijah needs to learn the lesson of an open hand. Because here's the deal. Uh, Living with an open hand allows me to not only give to God, but it allows me to receive from God. And some of us today need to learn this lesson of an open hand. Because God is calling you to more. And God may be calling you to stand alone, and God may be calling you to be the prophetic voice in this generation, but before God can use you the way that he wants to, he wants to work in you. And, And so one of the things we need to learn to do is have that open hand, because it's so easy to say, oh God, I know you want to do things through me, but this is my time, and I'm so busy, and this is my talent, And this is my treasure. This is my money. These are my resources. And I earned it. And I deserve it. And I'm going to hold on tightly. And you know what happens? Not only do we miss the opportunity to be a blessing in the way that God wants us to, but when we live our life with that closed hand, we are not in a posture to receive the blessing from God that he wants to give from you. And so some of us need to learn to live with the generosity of an open hand, and it's kind of scary to let go of some of those things. This woman didn't know where, what was going to happen. But she opens up her hands. And in that posture of an open hand, God is able to provide for her. So this is a season of training for Elijah, right? God is still preparing him for the big battle ahead. We're going to get to it next week. But I'm sure he's thinking, God, what are you doing? You're providing for me from a raven. You're providing for me from a, a woman who runs out of food literally every day. Literally every day she runs out of food and we have to wait and see if God's gonna provide the oil and the flour again. But for some of us, we are in a season of training and it's so easy to push back and, and you know, fight against that rather than to open our lives up and let God work through you and we'll let God work in you even in your in that Kirath Ravine even if you're having to learn a time of dependence. I saw a little example of this recently that made me think of this, and it's from the old movie Karate Kid. Um, and I know I'm dating myself when I talk about the movie Karate Kid because this is an old movie. A lot of you don't have never seen Karate Kid, hardly even know what it is, which is a crime because it's a great movie. Um <laughs> So if you're under 40, here's what happens in The Karate Kid. There's this kid by the name of Daniel, and Daniel gets picked on um, at school and all of these places, and so Daniel wants to learn karate so he can defend himself, but he doesn't have any money or any place to turn, and so he somehow makes friends with this old guy um, in his neighborhood named Mr. Miyagi, who is supposedly this karate instructor. And so he says, Mr. Miyagi, will you teach me some karate? He says, sure, Daniel, I'll do that. And so Daniel shows up to learn a little karate, and if you know the movie, what is what's Mr. Miyagi tell him to do? He's like, "Here's some paint. Here's the paintbrush." Daniel, I want you to go outside and paint the fence. And he's like, "I came here to learn karate, but okay." And he goes out, and Mr. Miyagi says, "No, like this. You know, paint the fence. Paint the fence." And so he spends the whole day painting the fence comes back the next day ready to learn some karate and Mr. Miyagi says what? He says now today we're going to wax the car. So wax the car and you go wax on and wax off and wax on. and wax. He spends the whole day, the fence is painted, he's waxing the car, spends the whole day doing that. He thinks surely tomorrow I'm going to learn some karate. Comes back the next day, what does he have to do? Today, Daniel-san, sand the floor, sand the floor. We're going to sand the floor. And he spends the whole day doing it. At the end of the day, he's actually so sore, he can't even move his arms. And he is just mad at this point. And so Daniel goes to Mr. Miyagi, and he says, I've just, I'm like slave labor to you. What are you doing? I came here to learn some karate, and all you've had me doing is this difficult, challenging stuff. And then the music turns in the, the, the film. And Mr. Miyagi says, you think you're ready to fight? And so he throws the first punch at him, and he pushes it away. And he says, no, Daniel-san, paint the fence paint the fence and he throws the punch at him and he blocks it with the paint the fence and then he throws the next punch at him and he waxes the, waxes the car and sands the floor and, and it ends with Mr. Miyagi like throwing just this you know all these blows at him kicks and everything like that and he's just like <laughs> and suddenly it's like the lights come on I've been wanting to learn what God had for me and all this time I've been learning all this time in the Kirith Ravine all that time when I didn't know what was going on God was working in me so that I could be ready when God wants to work through me. And you may be in a season where you feel alone. And God is saying, learn to trust. You may feel like you are at the doorstep of your enemy, having to trust in this woman who every day (laughs) runs out of food. But God is saying, Elijah, I see you. I've got you. I've even got great things for you. And then the very last thing that Elijah has to learn in chapter 17 is the lesson that with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. This is the way this chapter ends up in verse 17. It says, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. She grew worse and worse. Uh, The son did. He, He became worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She, the widow, said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, you have brought tragedy. Have you brought tragedy even on this widow that I am staying with by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And then the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So, wow. Obviously, that's a, you know, a, a crazy story, a wild story. It's a, an out-of-the-ordinary story. And as we dig into the, the life of Elijah and Elisha, you should just know, one of the things that, that you see in, in the Bible is you have the ministry of Jesus, where there's a lot of miracles. You have the period when with Moses and the plagues, and then he leads the people through the, uh, into the, across the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and God provides there. And then you have the time of Elijah and Elisha. And those three times are really where the vast majority of the miracles in the Bible are kind of centered around those three events, not the only ones, um, but a lot of them are centered around that. So we're entering into a time when Elijah sees these amazing things because Elijah needs to learn that with God, nothing is impossible. In fact, in this chapter, what have we seen? We've seen God uses an unclean raven. God uses a Gentile woman And now God uses a dead little boy, which by the way also would have been unclean for a prophet to touch. And God uses all of those three surprising things to show Elijah his power. It's as if God is saying to us, there is no box you can keep me in. There are no limits you can put on me. There is nothing that is impossible for me. Elijah, I've got great things for you. You need to learn these things so you can go and do those things. And it works how do I know? Look all the way back to verse 1. When we're first introduced to Elijah, what name is he given? He's Elijah the Tishbite. It's Elijah from Tishbe. When you get to verse 24 at the end of the chapter, who is he? Elijah, the man of God. You see, God has that process. God wants to transform us. And here's the deal. We may not be living in a time where we're seeing the same kind of miracles as in the days of Elijah, but you know what? We live in a time where we have seen the greatest miracle of them all, a a miracle greater than even Elijah got to see. We live in a day when we know that God loved the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He became a man on our behalf. And there, though he lived the perfect life, Still, he was accused and eventually put on a cross where he hung his arms out and gave up his life out of love. They buried him in a grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. The greatest miracle of all is Jesus conquers death, and we live on the other side of that miracle, right? And and so that's what we have. And any time we think about what God wants to do in us before he does through us, it centers on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I share that with you because we're about to take some time as a church family to celebrate communion together. And communion celebrates that part of Christ's life, that he came and that he gave his life for us. But he didn't just give his life, though he was buried, he rose again. And if you're unfamiliar with the tradition of communion or what we call the Lord's Supper, it goes back to the night before Jesus was betrayed. And before Jesus went to the cross, he gathered together with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. And there was a lot of symbolism that went with that. But ultimately, what Jesus did is with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is going to represent my body given for you, my body broken for you. So he says to his disciples, whenever you eat this bread, remember me. Remember what I've called you to. Remember that I'm with you. Remember that I am there for you. And then in the same way, Jesus took the cup and after giving thanks, he he passed the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood poured out of a new covenant. In other words, he's saying this is the blood of a new way to be in relationship with God not like through Elijah or any of the Old Testament prophets who had to try to work their way to God, but through the grace of Jesus Christ and his blood given for us, we can be washed clean. And let me just say something that I often say at a communion service like this. Here at First Baptist, we celebrate what we call an an open communion. You don't need to be a member of First Baptist Church to, to take this. You are welcome to participate in communion. But the pattern that we see in Scripture is that this is something that is for followers of Jesus Christ, people who have believed in him. And me saying this is not me trying to exclude you or saying, hey, don't you take that communion. This is me inviting you, saying if you've not yet placed your faith in Christ, what's holding you back? why not today? Why would you not say, Jesus, I may not understand all of it, but I need your forgiveness. I repent and I turn from my sins and I turn towards you to begin a new life. And you pray that prayer right where you are, and then you celebrate communion as a child of God. It's as simple as that. He's looking for our faith in you, and I invite you to that today. So we're going to take communion as we often do, kind of our pattern here is uh, we have some friends from a couple of our uh, classes, the Word and Deed class and the branches that are going to help pass out communion. Uh, When the bread comes, if you would hold on to that because it's a symbol of us as the the whole body of Christ, we'll take the bread together and I'll lead us in that. Then once the the cup is passed around, um, our worship team will lead us in a song and you could take that um, at your own time. But I want to invite uh, John Taraskis to come and pray for uh, the bread if you will, thank you, John. He's one of the class leaders of the word indeed, if you'd pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your Son Jesus Christ and uh, for his broken body that he willingly gave for each of us. And we as we take this bread, help us to remember um, the sacrifice that He paid for us, that we might be whole, even though He was broken, and that we might be restored. Uh, through the through his suffering so thank you lord in your name amen 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 how amazing is that that god loved us so much that he gave us his son and not only did he just give him to us but he gave his life for us that's what we root our life in that's what compels us that's what sends us out sometimes to stand alone Sometimes to be a voice in this generation, but always to live for Christ. So thanks so much for being here today. I hope you've been encouraged, uh, maybe challenged. If, if there's anything that we can do for you as a church, if we can pray for you, um, we'd love to do that. We also have what we call our five-minute party. If you're uh, visiting with us today, we've got some uh, fresh-baked cookies, I think, in my office, which is just to the left of the fireplace out there. Uh, stop by, I'd love to meet you. Say a quick hello um, there. Um, also, if, if uh, you're ready to be baptized, we've got that coming up in a couple weeks, so lots of opportunities. To take that step of faith. Also, just one reminder here on the first Sunday of the month, we always take our Deacon's Fund offering. uh, So, that's a special offering if you want to give. That goes to help with real specific needs, you know, someone in the church family or in our community. Um, And so, we appreciate you supporting the Deacon's Fund um, in that way, as well as our regular offering. So, let me now dismiss this with a word of prayer and ask God's blessing as we go. Thank you, Jesus for your body and blood given for us, applied to our life, full of grace and truth. Help us, Lord, to be people that live for you. We thank you for the call from your word to be people that trust you and depend on you. And I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today that we would go and live that kind of life of faith. Help us, Lord, to share your love and your light wherever you call us, because we, your people, go in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, God bless you and have a great day.